0: This week's Hunt and Land podcast is brought to you by the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Take a minute to listen to this special message. Turkey season is here. It's time to listen for those gobblers. Remember to game check your harvest. Your game check data will help manage one of Alabama's favorite game birds. Hunt safe and enjoy the season. Remember to do your part. Game check. Game check. Brought to you by the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. For more information, visit our website at outdooralabama.com. This is Hunting Land, the podcast for landowners and land hunters with how tos for habitat management and land investment. I'm Joe Baia. I'm here with Clint Flowers again today. And Clint, I understand you uh, just made the trek down to Disneyland. How'd it go? Uh, it went well. My shoes are worn out, my wallet's empty, but we had a great time. You know, you talk about land investment. Walt Disney might be one of the greatest land investors of all time. He took what most would consider very unproductive swamp land and turned it into extremely productive land. <laughs> if you consider how much money Disney World brings in, one of the largest companies in the world. Did he, uh, did he hit you up pretty good?
1: They did, but the beauty of their process now is you don't get to see it until the end because they give you this fancy wristband that you just walk around and just swipe it and get anything you want. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's tough i've got a uh, i've got a 15 month old and i know i know my day's coming
1: well it's uh like i said we had a blast and they've, they've done a wonderful job with that place but uh you know one thing he had was was vision and we've talked about that a lot when you're touching on the true investment of land you know having vision about your goals or you know what you want to turn the property into uh is important and not everybody's going to turn it into disneyland but understanding how to take a raw piece of land and develop it the way you want to support it. And, you know, really comes down to first and foremost, identifying those goals. Like we've talked about a lot, but w- one thing you don't want to do is develop your vision, you know, really put in all that sweat equity and time and then get to the point where you go to sell the property uh, and come to find out you don't have clear title.
0: That's right. And that's one of the things that a lot of guys, one of the reasons why a lot of people buy land is, is for the legacy that they can leave and, being able to pass that land down to their heirs and have something that that lasts, you know, continues on, kind of continues their legacy. And you know, for what for many different reasons, a lot of times when land is inherited, it ends up going on the market. Uh, a lot of times, it's it's just the only way you can cure uh, divided interest in the property where you've got uh, multiple heirs and one person really would like to keep that property but the others do not. So it ends up going on the market. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And, and really some of the things that if you're, if you're inheriting land or you're going to be giving land to your heirs, you really need to think about as it comes time to sell that property. So today on the show, we've got Coleman Breyers. He is an expert when it comes to dealing with inherited lands and all of the things that, that go on title. Coleman is the president over at Alabama Land Title. They've got offices in Foley, Daphne, and Baymanette, Alabama. Coleman, welcome to the show. I'm I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about some of the ins and outs of selling uh, inherited land. There's a a lot of things that can go on with that, especially when you're dealing with uh, multiple owners and siblings, and I know you've dealt a lot with that. So welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit more about Alabama Land Title and what you guys do over there.
2: Well, Thanks, Joe. I appreciate you having me on today. Well, um, Alabama land title was started in 1909, and uh, my wife and I bought it in 1995, and we've been kind of doing it ever since, and so it's been an interesting journey, and along the way, we've had to deal with a lot of different title circumstances, and uh, inherited land is certainly a big one, and in our county and in our state, there's a lot of farmland that's being converted to uh, subdivisions and those kind of things that were inherited land so that unearths a lot of problems in that industry
0: let's kind of do a little little definition process here you know you guys deal with title insurance a lot so tell me exactly what is title insurance and why does someone need it
2: title insurance is a little different than your typical homeowners policy uh, it's a policy that's backed up by a lot of work and research and expertise you'll Go into the courthouse, establish a starting point, generally 40 to 60 years ago. It depends on the particular circumstances. Sometimes it's longer. Sometimes you get lucky and it's not as long. Uh, And then you'll go start at a root deed and run the property out to look for exceptions and issues that may come up. Maybe they reserved an easement, they reserved oil, gas, and minerals. There's all kinds of different things that you would do. But essentially, once we're through, we'll issue a commitment. And a title insurance policy following after our conditions and the commitment are met, guaranteeing your title. And um, if we've made a mistake, the title insurance policy is there to back us up. And that's what you, when you buy a title insurance policy, you're really buying the company doing the service work first. And then the actual insurance policy is secondary. It's kind of like a homeowner's policy where we went out to your house and said, okay, We're going to fix everything that's wrong with your house, cut the trees around it so nothing can fall on it, and then we're going to insure it. And so that's what we do. We'll go into a piece of property, not physically, but on the courthouse records, go through all the stuff on that property and figure out what's wrong, get the corrective instruments issued, if there's some missing heirs that haven't signed deeds or easements that cross your property. We'll note those on the, on the policy and the commitment so that you can say, okay, oh, there's a gas line that goes across the middle of my property. Well, okay, now I know about it. Either I want to proceed or not. And then um, we'll issue a policy of title insurance for you so that you have peace of mind to know, A, that we did the job right, and B, if there is something that comes up, you've got a multi billion dollar company backing you up, and it's good forever. It's a one-time premium that you pay. And that policy is good from that point in time back. So if we did one today, everything behind it would be covered except those exceptions on the policy and in the jacket.
0: You say it's covered, you're covered forever. One time policy is, is there any issue with like if the insurance company goes out of business or is there any, anything like that that can happen? That's a good question, Joe. The, the, Most of these companies have been around
2: since the turn of the century. They're bonded, licensed insurance companies. They have, like I say, billions of dollars in reserve. I have not seen one personally go broke in my years or heard of that. I'm certain a smaller underwriter, if it's not one of the, what they say, the, the big three group of underwriters, then maybe you should investigate their reserves a little bit. But mm-hmm. generally, if it's a reputable company that's been around a while, they're not going to write for somebody. Um, and also, the, the underwriter, the, the insurance company, is not going to allow me to write for them. If it goes both ways, they put a lot of trust in us, as us as we issue these policies and commitments. They're not reviewing what we do. And so, they obviously have a a lot of trust in us and certain stats you know when we come to a sticking point or a question mark they will review those things but in the normal day-to-day course of business probably 30 percent of the stuff that we write or maybe even 20 percent of the stuff we write they actually you actually have to have a question answered there are certain guidelines that you follow but in the grand scheme of things the risk of a title insurer failing is very small and uh, they are certainly significantly capitalized and because it's not a casualty based product like homeowners, their claims are not very big. They don't have a lot of claims if I've done my job, right.
1: And to that Um, end, unlike homeowners, it's not a annual fee either, right? It's a one-time fee.
2: That's that's correct. It's a one-time fee and it's like a backstop from that date and time backwards. So let's just say, for example, Joe buys a piece of property 10 years ago and today somebody comes up and he bought title insurance, comes up and says, hey, Joe, I've got a right-of-way that I can go across your backyard and that particular easement is not accepted in the title policy, then you make a claim on the title policy and they defend you today. If that easement was established before Joe bought the property, if Joe granted them an easement, then obviously there wouldn't be an issue, but it's kind of a, a timeline thing. You just kind of think, okay, I got a policy today. Everything behind this that comes up is not listed on my policy. Um, I've got somebody to help me get out of this. Now, that's, that doesn't mean that somebody's just going to write you a check. A lot of times that does happen. In most cases, they go hire the attorneys, the experts, and they figure it out and fix it. And if right. it can't be fixed, then you get a check. I mean, it's there's nothing pleasant in making a claim with any insurance policy. That's kind of the part of this business that nobody really thinks about. And same with the car insurance or anything else. You know, you, the claims process is never very pleasant, but it's better to have somebody holding your hand going through it than you trying to do it yourself.
0: Let's talk about how title insurance relates specifically to inherited land. So when you're inheriting land in general, that property is either currently financed, it's been financed in the past, or, or it's never had financing. When a property was originally financed, but it, but it no longer carries a balance, so the debt's been paid off, will that property have had title insurance on it, have had to have had title insurance on it for financing purposes?
2: Well, it depends, Joe. And in most cases in modern times, yes, the bank maybe bought a title insurance policy uh, the title insurance policies are different than owner's policies. The title insurance policy guarantees the bank priority with the exceptions that are normally listed in the binder in and in the policy. It lists, you know, it guarantees the priority and will compensate the bank if there's a title claim when, the, but the policy goes away once the mortgage balance goes away and it's a sliding scale. If the balance is a, uh, 150000 and it was a $300,000 policy to start with, and there's only $150,000 worth of coverage there at that time. And so those rates are, you know, 30 to 40% cheaper than an owner's policy that's good forever up to the dollar amount that you paid for it, the dollar amount of coverage that you purchased.
0: So, Coleman, if I'm a landowner who has inherited land and I don't know the history of that, that title, um, meaning – You know, uh, maybe my, say my mom had the land and she bought it cash. And, and I just, you know, I don't, I don't really know for sure what's, what's on that title. What do I need to do to ensure that I've got clear title?
2: Sure. Anytime you're contemplating a sale of a piece of property, it's always wise to go get a title search or, contact your local title insurance company. Uh, there are a lot of attorneys that do this as well. Um, it depends on the town, um, essentially, or the county, what's traditional. And get a title search, or a title opinion letter, or maybe a listing binder. Uh, those are all different products that people produce to basically tell you the same thing. It'll give you the status of the title, tell you what's out there. Uh, depending on your circumstances, Sometimes you can get a title company to do it for free for you, but usually there's going to be a fee involved and it depends on obviously uh, the way the courthouse records are. And and it's hard to tell from state to state to give you a general idea, but you know, it can be a few hundred dollars to a thousand or more, depending on how complicated the title is. It's kind of, you just don't know uh, what you don't know until you go run the courthouse records and figure this stuff out. But, the way to do that would be contact your title insurance company, say, hey, mama died. I'm trying to figure out what we've got here. And they'll generally help you out. Um, hopefully, if you're agreeing to let them do the closing, they'll they'll do it for a, a nominal fee to help you out to establish title, the status of title, to find out if there are any easements that were granted or if there's any potential conflicts or maybe mama inherited it from grandmama or granddaddy and maybe there's another heir out there that nobody really realized or got a deed out of that happens a lot where uh you can buy a piece of property from somebody without title insurance and then it comes up hey well the cousin owns a piece of this because when granddaddy died he didn't leave a will and so all of his heirs had an equal interest in it just because Johnny was there farming. It doesn't mean that uh, Johnny's brother who moved off didn't own just as much as he did. And so there are lots of different scenarios that come up when that happens. Talk about um, that so, a little
0: bit about the differences between uh, a property that has been willed to someone and then a property that, you know, there when there was no will when the land. Sure. Opened sure.
2: In Alabama, title passes at the time of probation of the will, technically. Uh, there's a kind of a gray area there. And depending on the terms of the will, uh, the property will be inherited. So if the, if, the, if there's a piece of property that is uh, directly devised, let's just say it's you and your sister and and Mama D did uh, one property A to your sister and property B to you, then Upon the probation of the will, the title will pass even without a deed, as long as it's done that way. Now, let's say mama dies without a will, and you've got three siblings. Well, then all three of you will inherit those, uh, inherit an equal interest in that property uh, in that simple scenario. There are a lot of times where maybe one of the siblings are dead, and they had kids, and so it goes on down their, her interest would go on down that way to the kids of one of the siblings. And so it gets really complicated very quick. Uh, And if any of those siblings has had some financial issues and maybe had some judgments or tax liens or any of that stuff, those tend to
0: attach to the property and cause a problem uh, getting clear title. So it seems like it's very important, number one, if you're a landowner to get a will if you don't already have one. If you're inheriting land, I, I can see that being a, a potential pitfall where you may think, you know, daddy told you, hey, I'm giving you this land and you think it's yours, but if you if there's no will involved, you may be subject to splitting that land with any number of siblings and, and those siblings' heirs if, if they're deceased as well. That's exactly correct,
2: and if the will doesn't address it, usually the will has a pour over provision or something where it says all the rest and residue I bequeath to my heirs or whatever it says. And so that would equally best everyone that way. And so with a will, even it's not always a lock, it's always better to be specific or grant your executor power of sale specifically to dispose of all the property, however they see fit. And also with a will, the claims period is roughly seven months before you can convey clear title, versus two years if you don't leave a will. And you got to wait basically two years before you can convey it.
0: Now, Clay, you dealt with dealt with this on uh, on one of your properties, didn't you? Oh yeah,
1: I've got all kind of fun stories. We've got one now where coming out of an estate, we've got six tracks under contract where the seller didn't want to get the title opinion done uh, when we listed the property. In hindsight, we should have insisted because now we're three months past the contract to closing date and we can't close right now because they can't convey clear title because after the research was done, we found out that A, there was another heir involved that nobody was aware of, had any interest in the property, and that B, uh, part of their interest that came down from their mother, come to find out she only had a life estate in the property, not true title. To everything, yeah, and that, so, that goes away when she dies. That's right. So basically, what they thought they had was wrong. And had we invested, you know, like Coleman said, a few hundred dollars to maybe a little more at the at the front of this, we could have put out these fires before they got out of control. You know, now we're just asking people to be patient and hope we can close sometime within the next
0: year. And I'm dealing with the same thing uh, on, on a property in, in Florida where you know it's a it's a property that's been inherited. And it is, everything is assumed to be clear, but the landowner wasn't sure. And, you know, after listening to your stories and, you know, hearing hearing these kind of stories a lot, I'm advising them to, hey, before we start to market this property for sale, go ahead and get that title cleared up and get an abstract done. Let's make sure everything's in order before we both spend a lot of time and energy uh, trying to market that property. And I just—it's—it's something that seems like, you know, for a few hundred dollars, if that is much, you know, it's money well spent and time well spent to go ahead and get it cleared up right at the very beginning. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to be continuing to talk about dealing with inherited lands and all of the things that go on title. Hey guys, we get a lot of landowners that want to know how much is my land really worth. We recorded a video series to explain exactly how we determine that. Just head over to landhunting.com slash go to get the series. I'm confident it will help you achieve your land goals. And welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Coleman Breyers. He's the president of Alabama Land Title, and he's giving us some advice on what we need to consider uh, when it comes time to sell that inherited land. Which, Coleman, that, that kind of brings you, know, you were talking about you know uh, easements and things of that nature. What about surveys, especially in rural land? And do you recommend that a, a landowner have a survey done if they're thinking about selling that property? Or, you know, do they want you want to let that fall back onto to the, uh, the person purchasing the property? How do you feel about surveys? Well, I think they're
2: an essential tool in most cases for the person buying and the person selling. You know, it's so tough when you're uh, through the negotiation stage and uh, the buyers and sellers have beat each other up on selling for this price or this price. And they finally settle and they're already kind of probably gotten a fair price. If each side is mad at the other, that means, you know, they, they, you know, you probably, everybody's probably getting a fair deal. And so then, then they go do a survey and something comes up and they're looking for an excuse to walk. And that's not good for anybody. It always ends up being very, when, in fact, if they had the survey going in, they already knew all these facts and and there's nothing to negotiate over. And it also gives the the, uh, seller a little peace of mind to know, hey, wait a minute, I've got a problem. Uh, I can think of a case in point. Uh, This fence is not on the actual line. Um, This happened to us personally. We had a mile-long fence and it was off by a few degrees. It was installed in the 40s. We have a perimeter road on one side of it, and uh, my neighbors were using the fire lane on the other side. But it ended up, because the fence was a few degrees off, it's actually created a triangle on each side of the line where we owned a little bit of theirs, and they owned a little bit of ours. But this had been in the family for roughly, I don't know, 80 years, maybe 100, that both sides have owned it together. And that had been their common established boundary line for that amount of time. However, as things happened, you know, the farming industry went away. Kids had kids, and but none of them were around. And so they weren't familiar with the issues. And so we get to a, a point and realize this has happened. And if you're on Clint's side of the deal, if you got a buyer ready to buy, they're ready to move on and buy the property and the seller is too. However, this took us three years to work this deal out because everybody, all the family members had to come look and then they still didn't think it was right. It was a an obvious fix for everybody. There's Nobody was disputing that this was the line except for we had a survey done. Actually, they had a survey done and it's turned up. And uh, so anyway, those things can get really complicated. And if you know those on the front end, you can get that work out a whole lot quicker than when you've got a buyer ready to buy. And from a seller standpoint,
1: you're kind of uh, over a barrel for a little bit to make this work. And to what Coleman's saying, that's, you know, those kind of things are even more important if you're an out of state landowner or somebody that's not, doesn't visit the property frequently or you're just not familiar with it in general to that end, you know, Coleman, let's say you've got somebody that inherited land, but, let's just say texas their mom lived in texas they live in texas the property was owned in alabama and the will and the probate everything occurred in texas and wasn't recorded in alabama but now they want to sell the land in alabama what needs to happen some of it depends on the amount of time that has passed but typically
2: you would file ancillary proceedings in the county that your that the property is located in 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 alabama so you would have to get the Uh, You basically open up a new estate, have the legal work for the the estate in Texas admitted into the county where the property is, go through the same probate proceedings, and it's essentially another seven-month claim period opens up, then off you go. Or B, plan B is you can file affidavits of death and heirship from two disinterested parties, establishing that John Smith died and he had these people and these are all his heirs at law of next to kin. Then you get a deed out of all of them. And that's a two-year waiting period for claims. But if the person was dead, this happened, you know, five, six years, ten years ago or whatever, and there technically wouldn't be a claims period at that point. You would just file the affidavits and move forward as well. So it's, there's two or three different answers to that. But those are some solutions. And not everyone's the same, of course. Uh, That's what makes this job interesting.
0: But it sounds like, uh, I mean, a lot of people ask, you know, that question is if they're selling land or especially selling inherited land in a state that they don't live in, they really need to contact a title company in that state is what it it sounds like to me. Uh,
2: Absolutely. Uh, You need to find, uh, it's always better to have some uh, local home cooking in whatever state, in whatever county that you're dealing with. Or somebody familiar with dealing with those counties because every county's judge runs his courthouse a little different. And so there's some, sometimes there's just certain nuances in, let's just say, Baldwin, if there's not in Escambia or Mobile and Baldwin counties. Both of those two counties, the probating of a will is significantly different between Baldwin and Mobile. If you don't have somebody locally familiar with those procedures, it can just make your life a whole lot harder. So Coleman, what does an owner's policy cost? Uh, that's a typically a state-regulated in Alabama rate, but typically with the search fee for let's just say a hundred thousand dollar policy, I think it's five hundred and twenty-four dollars. Usually includes your search fee and and the title insurance, and that's good basically forever. There's every now and then there may be some extenuating circumstances if the uh, title was. Substantially more difficult, or it's a special case that you might, the prices could go up, your search fee would go up, but not actually the title insurance premium. And so, um, the filed rate in Alabama, I think the actual policy rate is $350, and the rest of that would be paying somebody to actually go out there and do the work, figure out the prop title, and all that. So, that's t- that would be a typical rate for a hundred thousand dollar policy.
0: Well, Coleman, you know, my brother's an attorney, and uh, listening to you guys talk uh, all your legalese is, you know, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really get my my emotions stirring all that much. But uh, <laughs> but one of the things with with title insurance is y'all are fixing a lot of these problems on the front end. So give me some examples, issues that you've been able to clear up through a title search that could have potentially been a big problem for the, for the heirs or for the, the the next landowner down the line.
2: Yeah. uh, A good example, I think would be, I was working on something with Clint a year or so ago and we unearthed an unreleased mortgage that was two or three owners back that um, it was a blanket mortgage, several million dollar mortgage over, over a bunch of property, you know, this, of which this piece was a part and they'd never released it and uh, the mortgage was still outstanding. However, the one of the main guarantors in the mortgage had filed bankruptcy, and so it, it gets, but the long story short was, we managed to get the bankruptcy court to get the mortgage released, and uh, we solved a potential problem that would have been a disaster for the new buyer. Uh, obviously, would have resulted in a claim on title insurance, which is why you buy title insurance, to protect yourself from that. And so, we find stuff like that every day, it seems like, where maybe there, there's a missing heir or they didn't sign the deed, uh, the executor didn't have power of sale, and so the executor signed, but actually the heirs all owned a piece of the property and didn't convey their interest out. and. You know, you get that fix on the front end before they see a big sack full of money, and nobody has a headache. But buddy, when you go to court nowadays, you know, twenty thousand dollars in legal fees is just to get started, and so it that pays off dividends when you on a hundred thousand dollar deal and you only paid five hundred dollars for insurance. We don't, we, obviously, nobody wants to have claims, but they do happen occasionally, and that's what the insurance product is for. I can think of uh, one instance years ago for us where there was an old railroad right away and that went through a piece of property in Baldwin County that um, didn't show up in the title search. And the company went out there and started building, and they got a notice. And it resulted in a claim. And the title insurance company ended up compensating those folks. Everybody walked away free. And I think that it was a $250,000. Uh oh! Wow, you know, and it, you know, it was a not nothing. Nobody ever wants to make a mistake like that, but it, the way the railroad right away was indexed just didn't show up. It wouldn't normally show up on the way that the title was run, and so that was a problem where we actually missed something. But that's what title insurance is for.
0: Well, you know, Coma, it seems like if if you've inherited some land uh, or you're going to be giving some land to your heirs getting in touch with a title company in your area. And when I say in your area, let me ask you that question. Is it important that you do it in the area that that land is in, or does it just need to be someone within that state who's familiar with those county laws?
2: It really just needs to be someone who's familiar with those county laws. It's the most important thing. If they regularly practice in that county, then you shouldn't have a problem. You usually... It's a title company. Like for us, we work in Baldwin, Mobile, Escambia, Clark, Wilcox, Monroe, just kind of this region in this area. But we do stuff in Birmingham as well and
0: further other counties
2: up. But if it's a good reputable title company, they will either retain somebody in that county to help them through this. And if it's not, then that's the problem, obviously. So you want to know when you – that would be the first question I would ask my title company is, hey, you do business in this county, and B, if you do, are you familiar with the way things are done? Just because you're not located there, doesn't mean that you're not good at it. Some counties don't even have anybody in them to do anything like this. They don't do. They don't. So it's usually somebody from out of county that does it already. So that's a case by case situation. But you want to interview your guy and make sure that
1: they are familiar with your with the county that the property in. Well, Coleman, you know, I hear a lot when I'm trying to explain the benefits of a title policy to people, you know, they say, well, I've got a warranty deed, so, so why do I need an, an insurance policy? So can you elaborate on that? Sure, Clint. That's a great question.
2: Um, a warranty deed protects both the buyer and the seller. Um, if you're a seller with a significant amount of assets and you sign a warranty deed, you know, and something comes up there's an issue with the property, they have legal grounds to come back after you. And that's why you buy title insurance, to protect you. On the other side, the buyer, let's say uh, you got a warranty deed from somebody and they can't, you can't even find them anymore. You can't find any heirs or maybe they just, you know, there's the old saying that you can't get blood from a turnip. Maybe there's nothing there to get. And so
1: that's the other reason for title insurance. They're
2: protecting both sides of the transaction.
1: Yep. It's, uh, you go to the bank and the bank's empty. It's hard to get money out.
0: Well, fellas, when it comes to land, there's, uh, there's all kinds of ways you can spend money. And I know a lot of guys will, will drop 500 bucks on, uh, on seed for food plots and, uh, y- you know, corn for their, for their deer feeders without even thinking about it. But a lot of times when it comes to something like a, you know, title insurance, they, they kind of say, well, why do I need that? It seems like we covered pretty extensively today it's money well spent no doubt about it coleman if folks want to get in touch with you there at alabama land title what's the best way for them to do it sure joe you can obviously get our information off the web at alabamalandtitle.com um,
2: or you can call our offices either our payment or daphne offices those numbers are 251-937-5566 are 251-626-2518, and then when you're in the Foley area, it's 251-943-1551. You can call any one of those offices. Our emails are listed on the website at alabamalandtitle.com, and uh, we certainly appreciate the opportunity to share uh, this exciting topic of title insurance with everybody
0: <laughs> <laughs> well well thanks for sharing your insight man i mean it it uh it, it may not be the most exciting topic but uh people can get pretty excitable whenever they find out they don't really own what they think they own it can get exciting in a hurry so i appreciate you sharing some of those those pitfalls and uh good luck for you in uh 2019
2: thank you clint thank you joe i certainly appreciate the opportunity and look forward to seeing you and talking to y'all soon Thanks, Coleman. Thanks, guys.
0: Well, Clint, as with anything, you know, every property is unique and, you know, what you do with one may not be what you do with the next. Uh, you know, I was telling telling my story that uh, right now we're, we're, we're making sure we've got a clear title before we begin marketing a property, but if you've got a, a property and, and they are Fairly certain that they've got clear title. Uh, they don't have a, maybe title insurance, but they are fairly certain. Do you do you wait to market that property until you're absolutely certain?
1: We'll do some preliminary research on our own. If there's no red flags that are jumping out at us, uh, you know anything that indicates there's a lot of heirs or anything like that, we'll typically go on and get it out there, and then do a title search within the first few weeks to a month. It's somebody that we're familiar with the property, or we you know, or the title then many times we'll wait until the property's under contract. And then, you know, those things take about two weeks to get back. But when the market's as good as it is right now, you know, we do our best not to wait on those kind of things to drag out to, to stop us from getting onto the market because things are really good right now. So it's, you don't want to wait to get it out there.
0: Well, we talked about that, uh, you know, some right around the beginning of the year that uh, the environment we're in right now, uh, interest rates still are historically low. And it's, it's really creating an opportunity, a good opportunity for both buyers and sellers. And that, that sounds like a, you know, salesmanship, but but it's not going to last forever, the environment that we're in. And so what, what are you seeing in your area? You're, you're focused mostly in Southwest Alabama, kind of Central Alabama and uh, along the Southern half of the state. Obviously, you're licensed Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. but. What kind of values are you seeing? Let's focus on Timberland to start. Uh, what are you seeing tracks selling for?
1: Most of them are still running in that uh, fifteen hundred to three thousand an acre price range. You know, just depending on the primarily on the timber value and location and and access goes into that as well. But you know, assuming good soil quality, good stocking, uh, that's the price ranges we're seeing.
0: When we talk a little bit about you know price per acre. Everybody loves to talk about price per acre. And I guess it's just because it's a universal, gives them a metric that they can compare properties with. But it's really a kind of an unfair, it's really to me, it's an unfair metric because what if they've built a $100,000 cabin on the property? What if they've built a five acre lake and it's fully stocked with bass? You know, and then you, so when somebody, when somebody comes to you, and, and this happened to me just this past week, and they say, well, I'm, just, I'm not going to spend more than $2,000 an acre on land, period, end of story. When somebody comes to you and they say that, what, what do you say back to that? That's fine, but the, you know that's a
1: limiting factor. So, you know, If they want to track with towering old-growth timber that's worth 2000 an acre by itself, they're not going to be able to buy it, you know, not with a knowledgeable seller, which is what most of us are going to encounter. You know, when something's that big and that tall, most sellers, even if they're not in the timber business, realize that it has significant value. So they're going to limit themselves to what they can buy for 2,000 acre.
0: Right. I think it benefits you to kind of think outside the box when it comes to buying your land. I mean, I'm on a, there's a track that I've got listed in North Walton County right now that's right at 200 acres. And this property's got every tree on it's over, every pine tree on it's over 30 years old. And to come in with a blanket of, I'm only spending X amount per acre, heck, you may be spending, you know, you may go out and buy the, the $1,500 or $2,000 an acre land somewhere else, but it may cost you more than this track does because this thing's just loaded with big trees. And, you know, you've got options then to maybe do some selective cuts. I mean, you clear cut it if you wanted to, but you've got a lot of options. You've got a lot of cash sitting just sitting there on that property. Uh, that that actually brings that cost per acre down lower than that tract you think is uh, is budget priced.
1: And really what you're alluding to is the basis in the dirt. So that dirt value at closing is something that never changes. You can always affect the timber value by cutting it or letting it grow or uh, whichever approach you want. But that dirt basis, which is really the root uh, of your entire land investment, Uh, you know, at 2000 an acre for that example, for that buyer, they may overpay in the dirt, but still pay no more than 2000 per acre because they didn't come at it from an educated perspective or they might've missed out on a great deal that had a lower dirt value, but it was over 2000 an acre because of that strong timber value I mentioned. If they don't come at it objectively and, and, you know, try to drop some of that buy at price bias, they could really overpay or, or, Leave money on the table.
0: What about uh, what about agricultural land? You got any ag listings right now, Clint?
1: We're working on some. It's uh, there's not a lot hitting the market overall. Our you know our inventory in this area is pretty low anyway. The state's seventy around seventy five percent timberland. So uh, what does come up ag wise typically doesn't last long. But what we've seen, depending on where it is and the competition of, of lease rates, the number of farmers has ranged. In, in more rural areas, around two thousand to twenty five hundred dollars an acre, some in the high teens uh, but not many uh, and then you get down towards the coastal areas that can jump up to anywhere between three and seven thousand an acre.
0: When you see that jump as you get closer to those coastal areas, why do you see that jump? Is it the productivity of the farmland or is it the uh, the region is in with, with development potential?
1: It's a little bit of everything. It's, it's Sometimes it's better dirt. Sometimes it's irrigated. Sometimes it's a logistical issue of being close uh, you know, to the production facilities that, that are going to buy you know, those crops. Um, and sometimes it's the transitional land factor of you know, this great development land, but current use is farming. Uh, and you got some people that will pay that extra value and hold it as an income-producer property. Uh, until the path of growth reaches them and then they'll turn around and sell it for development track, you know, years down the road. As always, it just depends.
0: Right. Uh, Over here in my area, uh, you know, Walton County, Washington County, we're seeing, you know, land rents in the 25 to $75 an acre range uh, for ag land. As you get in, if you st- like, you said as you step on up to you know irrigated cropland, you can see land rents on up close to two hundred dollars an acre. You seeing those same kind of values uh, where you are? Uh, on
1: jumping back to pasture, we see typically uh, twenty to twenty five dollars an acre. Uh, if you get into row crop, they'll jump anywhere from again depending on location, low end thirty five forty dollars an acre up to that several hundred dollar an acre range in the areas of high competition and irrigated land.
0: Clint, it sounds like the market over in your part of the neck of the woods is, is doing pretty good. Uh, it's doing pretty good where I'm at too. I'm, I'm definitely happy to see that. I hope I hope it continues on for a good long while. You never really know, but it's good right now.
1: Yeah, I uh, I'm with you. Sounds like your market's doing well and seems that way everywhere, you know, with the combination of all the economical factors we've talked about so I'm, I'm hoping it continues well and i think we learned today what's important to you know use a professional along the way that you know really has a good network of people like coleman to help you speed the process up and make sure that you're not one of those people that get a few days out from closing and find out that you don't have clear title we touched on a few stories there but i've got many many more you know a lot of hard lessons learned along the way
0: well You know, we've all had those times in our life where you, you get that, that feeling where your stomach goes up in your throat and, uh, that's one of them. I can only, I hope I don't ever have to experience it, but I can only imagine when you're, you're that close to putting that deal together and there's a lot goes into it, whether it's family land or that you've inherited or just property that you've put a lot of, you know, blood and sweat and time and energy into, and, and you're, you know, you're selling it for whatever your reasons are. To see it kind of go south for something that's preventable uh, for just a few hundred bucks. I would hate to see anybody go through that, but it does happen.
1: Yep, it happens every day.
0: Folks, that's going to wrap it up this week. If you got any more questions about selling inherited land, just reach out to us at pros at As always, thanks for the support and the reviews on iTunes. Subscribe, rate, review wherever you listen to podcasts. And we will see you next week.